Hi guys, before I introduce today's guest, I want to give a shout out to Fed from Inside Seaweed. If you like Cry for Kelp, you'll love the Inside Seaweed podcast. Fed really knows his stuff and has some excellent guests from seaweed legend Dr. Thierry Chopin to Rihanna Reese from the Seaweed Academy. And with slightly longer episodes than mine, you can dive a little bit deeper. Just search for Inside Seaweed wherever you get your podcasts or click the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to A Cry for Kelp with me, Nick Williams, where I interview the movers and shakers of the seaweed industry. Today on the pod, I'm delighted to have Samantha Dean, the Managing Director of the Kelp Forest Foundation. That name may ring a bell for you as they were mentioned a couple of times in our last episode with Valentin from Kelp Blue because the two organisations work very closely together. The Kelp Forest Foundation are a non-profit charity whose aim is to quantify the positive biodiversity impacts of kelp and make that knowledge, science and technology available for use by companies, governments, regulators, not-for-profits, academics and other stakeholders, possibly you guys. Their work will be fundamental to see we being considered an ocean-based solution to climate change. And if you don't believe me, just ask MIT, where the foundation were recently nominated as solver in their 2022 climate challenge. Samantha started her career at Merrill Lynch before establishing a successful interior design company in the UK and the Middle East. Then in 2021, she decided to devote her time and energy to kelp and was quickly named top innovator at the World Economic Forum's Uplink Challenge. She has a law and economics degree from Durham University and a diploma in international investment management from the London Business School. And if that wasn't enough, also finds time to be a hands-on mother of three teenagers. We had a fascinating conversation about the many second and third order effects of growing kelp. So much information was covered, in fact, that I've decided to break the episode into two parts, with the second part coming out this time next week. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Hello, Samantha. Hi, Nick. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us today. I would like to dive right in, if I may, because we've got lots to talk about. Uh, And I always like to ask my guests, what motivated you to make the jump into kelp? Was it driven by fears of climate change or was it the oceans or was it a bit of both? It was a combination of both. I have three children and I wanted to try to be part of the solution in trying to give them a a better world um, and for them to really see that everybody can be part of the solution. You just have to find where your talents and the opportunities are to do that. Um, Yeah. That's awesome. That's such a nice thing. And what was the, uh, and how did you work out that it was kelp that was where you were the best place to put your skills that is due to the fact that I met, uh, or I know Daniel Hoft and Caroline Hoft, who are the co-founders of Kelp Blue, and they had resigned from their respective jobs, one being Shell and the other one uh, being Unilever, etc., to start a company of that would grow giant kelp offshore, with the ultimate goal of sequestering CO two and boosting biodiversity. So I joined originally Kelp Blue uh, to help with fundraising. I have a background. I worked for Merrill Lynch for many years and then did franchise management within the design world. So I am comfortable with speaking to investors uh, and fundraising. So my original role was within Kelp Blue on the investor relations fundraising side. I see. And then how did you flip into the, into the Kelp Forest Foundation? So as we were trying to explain to investors, potential investors, how much 
benefits these cultivated kelp forests would be bringing. We realized that what we were doing was so new, so innovative in terms of the type of seaweed, the offshore location, the scale, that there wasn't any data out there that could help us um, tell the story and really back it up with science. So we decided to set up the Kelp Forest Foundation just over a year ago to really fill the gaps in the science, to put applied research into those uh, in that those data that that data that was missing that that those key pieces of information. So the Kelp Forest Foundation is really focused about seventy percent of its time on doing the research uh, on carbon sequestration, on biodiversity impact, and also on avoided emissions of kelp-based products that are also being quite new uh, to the world, say bioplastics or um, biofertilizers. I see. So you really are looking at what it's going to take for kelp to 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 become the the ocean based solution to climate change. So you're you're getting all of this data, and and who's going to use this data? Obviously, kelp blues. Who else is going to use this data? Do you think? So there is the more data you collect, the more you understand that there are so many different users that could be looking at this data. For example, we work very closely with a company called Nature Metrics, um, and they are pioneering environmental DNA. So we collect data from the oceans uh, to really see what is, to create baseline studies, what is in the oceans, in this bit of the ocean um, over the next few seasons, to be able to then compare the data later on. But this same data will go you know, feed into the Ministry of Fisheries, for example, or people looking at ecosystems as a whole. Um, nutrient data. There is no available historical nutrient data in the area we're working in, in Ludritz. So we are providing really the first uh, independent data that will be going not only to us, and that goes into, for example, the kelp growth model that ties into the carbon sequestration model. It also goes to show whether the kelp farms, for example, are really depleting too many nutrients and the competition with for, for, uh, other other organisms like phytoplankton. Mm-hmm. Um, the data that we collect on carbon sequestration will also tie into ocean acidification. And there are a lot of uh, institutions around the world looking at how do we find solutions for the deacidifications in the ocean. So there are multiple stakeholders, users of this data, and data is really, you know, the new gold in, in terms of uh, research. Of course. So there's quite a lot to unpack there. I would firstly, can you just go go, go into Ludolith? So that's where that's where this, the kelp farm is for kelp blue. You're getting all this great data there. Is there anywhere else in the world where where data is being collected at the, uh, like yours, or you really are the pioneer for it? No, there are a lot of places around the world that are doing seaweed cultivation and a lot of seaweed farmers that are uh, accumulating data or, or, or picking up all of this data. So it is, no, it's not just in, in Ludritz, um, because I think we're all trying to uh, make it not only a, a nature-based solution, but also a science-based solution. So be it in, in British Columbia, Alaska, California... Australia, New Zealand, there are many different uh, universities, but also seaweed companies that are collecting this data. I see. So 
uh, are you get, you're getting you're collecting all this data. There's other places getting getting all this data. Is there a central sort of uh, repository for all of this data? Is there some you know where where it's all being passed, or is it all different individuals passing the data in different indiv- in individual ways at the moment? I think there are a lot of silos, and that right. is a shame because it is a small industry. But there are uh, institutions that are trying to put these silos together in different um, work groups. Uh, there's an ocean CDR work group. Um, there's one about ocean modeling work group. But for example, Nature Metrics is putting a lot of this data onto the bioatlas. So all the eDNA data is going onto a very global um, atlas of biodiversity. So it is depends which, which sector you're talking about. Um, there is shared data um, and there is silo data. Fantastic. Fantastic. So um, let's talk about some of this data, though, specifically. We've, we've, we've referenced uh, carbon uptake. We've referenced uh, the DS certification. What are the other, uh, um, and this is all part of ecosystem services. This is something that, a concept that I haven't really got my head around yet. But if you could, could you explain it uh, on the broad brush terms? What are, we, what are we talking about with ecosystem services? So ecosystem services are all these services that uh, an you know, an ecosystem like a kelp forest will have not only on the ocean, but also on the atmosphere. So when kelp grows, it is like land-based plants, they photosynthesize, which means that they take carbon and oxygen from the air. Um, and by creating, by photosynthesis, they create a, a biomass. And this carbon that uh, is taken from the atmosphere goes into the, the algae itself. And when it dies um, and ends up in very deep bits of the ocean, be it in sediments or dissolved, it is sequestering what they call sequestering carbon. It is putting away carbon um, for long, short and long periods of time. That, that carbon sequestration also uh, does other functions, which is elevate, for example, the pH of the water, which means that it makes it less acid. So that's what they call deacidification. By bringing carbon in, they're also releasing oxygen. So they're oxygenating uh, the water. So th- that happens in sort of halo effects. They're also what they called uh, water purifiers or nutrient sc- scrubbers or nutrient uh, recyclers or recovery. So um, seaweed also needs nutrients to grow like nitrogen and phosphorus. And so it helps soak up these excess nutrients that come into the water, say, from agriculture or industrialization. And that means that it is worked as a, as a filter and also recovering these excess nutrients, which can then, if you use the kelp um, as fertilizer, then goes back onto the land into probably a more user-friendly way uh, for plants to be able to soak it up. So that is um, one of, you know, another uh, ecosystem service. When you have too much, many nutrients in the water, you also have the creation of algae blooms. And these algae blooms are terrible for biodiversity. They deoxygenate the water. So by soaking up these excess nutrients, you're also reducing the amount of algae blooms, which help the biodiversity. And lastly, they are ecosystem engineers. Um, so seaweed, uh, giant Ooh, kelp, for example, G- yeah, that's a good big word. Giant kelp forests um, c- 
create these ecosystems. They really provide habitat and shelter and food for multitudes of species. So they, they create an environment for these species to really live and reproduce and be sheltered. Um, so they also boost biodiversity and indirectly, obviously, fish stocks, because that's where, uh, you know, if left unperturbed, then the fish can reproduce and become uh, more plentiful. And then you also wow. have the, There's obviously, more? yeah, you have more, wow. you have, you know, they, they protect coastal areas um, from big waves and storms. Um, some researchers are looking at them for sound barriers. There's a lot of activity in the ocean with drilling and construction, et cetera, and, and boats. And they can be seen as sort of soaking up um, extra sounds. And then, of course, you have the, the socioeconomic benefits um, mm. to the coastal communities. You're giving them uh, alternative uh, sources of income. You're giving them jobs. You're giving a bioresource for a growing population. Um, you're creating value-added products that then go also to avoid emissions. Um, you're creating recreation opportunities. Um, and, of course, you're creating a solution for food security challenges that we, we are definitely going to be facing as the population grows. Oh, indeed, indeed. But this is, this is extraordinary. I, mean, I think when I first became aware of the value of macroalgae or of seaweed. I just thought it was carbon sequestration. I didn't realize. Then I started to believe it was, I started to understand the desertification stuff. But these other um, ecosystem services are quite extraordinary. Is there is there a downside? Is that This seems like a no-brainer. Why are we not just making loads and loads of seaweed farms all over the world in, on coasts? Is, is there something that we have to be watching out for before we do that? It is definitely the pinnacle of sustainable aquaculture. It has a very, very low uh, footprint in many respects. Yes, there are always risks with any intervention in the ocean, and it depends how it's done. Is it done sustainably, or are you adding things to the water, say acids or fertilizers, etc., that that are not really good for the environment? But sustainable seaweed aquaculture is really, really very... Um, has a very low footprint. So some of the risks are uh, excess nu- that you take up too many too many nutrients and then you affect um, other uh, members of the ecosystem that mm. uh, there is entanglement entanglement from marine fauna, say uh, whales or dolphins get entangled into the with the cords that are used for the seaweed, that you are doing too much shading on an area that has a a benthic habitat, um, that you lose equipment and then that obviously affects, um, yeah, you know, you lose ropes, et cetera, that could right. be affecting other marine, uh, uh, ecosystems. But in, um, in offshore situations, the competition, especially in upwelling, the competition for, for nutrients is really not an issue because you have enough, uh, nutrient, uh, availability for, phytoplankton and and many other organisms in near shore areas um, that could be more of an issue. So that's all fascinating stuff, and I'm I, but I'm interested because data is fundamental to everything you you guys are doing. So where are you getting this data? How how do you pull this data out of the out of the ecosystem in the first place? So there are very different types of uh, ways of collecting data. You have 
the using of sensors in the water environment, geochemistry sensors that, for example, will tell you how, many, how much nutrient there is or how much phosphorus or, or carbon, etc. Then you have, uh, that is visual sensors where you use cameras, GoPros, camera traps to be able to look at, for example, biodiversity. You have eDNA kits which is passing water through a filter and then you send that filter to nature metrics and then they will analyze uh, the taxa that are the, the type of fish, et cetera, that have been in that water. You have satellite data and that is also changing quite fast. For example, you go from normal satellite to hyperspectral satellite, which means that it can go deep into the water about six meters, which helps you, for example, look at kelp biomass. You have acoustic data which is passive or active, where you either listen to the sounds in the ocean by recording the sounds, for example, of dolphins, or you have active data where you send pings and then it comes back with backscatter. And that helps you calculate the biomass of organisms that, for example, don't emit sounds like jellyfish, for example. Or you can use it to calculate the kelp biomass. So data is collected um, in those those ways. You also have to do coastal monitoring where you do transects and that means that you mark an area which with a gps marker and a square and you come keep coming back to that same spot every time to see if there's been changes then you also have microscope microscopes where you look at the different types of zooplankton phytoplankton that you are coming across or the egg larvae um, so that you can understand whether it's becoming a spawning ground so there is a wow, massive mountains. amount of data and parameters that has to be collected for the different um, pockets that we're looking at, which are biodiversity, geochemistry, carbon capture. And and you guys at Kelvin, so to be to be clear, you you are not just collecting that data, but you're also passing it and turning it into data that can be utilized by companies, by governments. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So the Kelvin Foundation is a non-profit. Is a charity. Our aim is really to shed light independently uh, and transparently on the science. So that data goes to different uh, research institutions, be it Cambridge University, which, which we're doing a um, kelp CDR model. So that data will go on to what is the effect of the kelp on the geochemistry, how, you know, how, what, what are the, all of these parameters doing towards the kelp growth model that we're doing. And then the ocean physical models help us determine where the kelp is likely to end up. And we look for, then we go and do the coring of the sediments there. So the, the data gets um, allocated to the different research institutions that need it for their modeling or for their research papers. I see, I see. And, uh, and we just, we've just dealt with data from the water um, uh, but you did also mention you get data on the impact of the kelp-based products that, that are after that it's been farmed. Can you talk about that? Yes, so we are starting now a very big three-year uh, research with Wageningen University, so agricultural university, a big university here in Holland. And the research we want to do is from the kelp biostimulant, which is a, a sort of natural organic fertilizer, what is the effect of the biostimulant on the plant physiology? I, what is the genetic transformation that this has an impact on the plant to explain why it is much better in abiotic stress, for example? 
what is the impact on the soil? What is happening to the bacteria um, and the microorganisms in the soil when you use kelp biostimulant as opposed to synthetic fertilizers or nothing? And thirdly, what is the impact on the run of the runoffs of the biostimulant compared to the synthetic fertilizer? What happens in the lakes and rivers down the road with that excess nutrient that goes into the water? So really what affects the biodiversity a bit more holistically in the watersheds. So that is a three-year research project between the plant physiology department and the soil health department of Wageningen, um, which we are about to start probably in a couple of months. Well, that sounds fascinating. And I imagine, therefore, when, when you're thinking about that, that extra nutrients into the watershed, that's a you know, you don't want to have algae blooms in different places just because you've done something that's really good in the first stage. But actually, the net effect is that uh, the watershed itself gets complicated and starts to mess exactly. up. Exactly. Is, is, is there are there concerns of that already? Have, have, has that been seen that there's been more algal blooms when people? Because I know I believe that kelp has already been used as a biostimulant in some places. It has, yeah, it has been used as fertilizers for centuries. Yeah. I mean, you go to. Ireland and Norway and and Scotland, the farmers have been using kelp on their land directly for centuries. So I think that is, for us, is not, that is really not a concern. In in fact, it's the other way around, is really how much are we preventing algae blooms by the use of biostimulants as opposed to synthetic fertilizers. And two more applications that we're involved in is also in the University of um, Queens in Belfast, they're looking at the impact of brown uh, seaweed, of macroalgae, on feed with animals. We all know that the red seaweed, for example, asparagopsis, mm. can bring down the amount of methane that cows burp out by 90-95%. But it does have a, a side effect, which it does have a lot of broforms. So Queen's University is looking at the brown seeds, which are easier to grow, and they believe that they would be reducing methane by about 30% without the side effects of the brofarm. And then you also have um, the Erastus University, Rotterdam, that are looking at uh, brown seaweed for Alzheimer's. So on the oh, medical wow. side, what what is the is it going to be a, something that we could use against the disease of Alzheimer's? My so goodness. these are huge, three of the big research, yeah, research projects that we're involved in with in terms of the product. And of course, you have the bioplastics. Uh, there are a lot of companies, there were about, I think, 30 startups last year or in the last two years, which are using algae in um, biopackaging and, yeah. and bioplastics. So that is also a study, an LCA study, better said, life cycle analysis study that needs to be looked into as well. Interesting. I just want to uh, highlight one thing you said because I, I wasn't quite, uh, I, I don't think I know the science well enough. With, with regards to asparagopsis, because we had CH4, we had David from CH4 on to talk about that specifically, that, that animal feed, the red seaweed animal feed. Um, and but what is this? So, what's the problem with broforms uh, and that, that maybe uh, brown uh, seaweed will, will not have? What, I think the level, yeah, the level of broforms in red seaweeds, or at least in asparagus is much higher than the brown seaweeds. So, something like macrocystis. So, the Queen's University was a bit worried that you are benefiting in one side, which is the, um, the methane reduction, but you are, yeah. uh, 
you know, putting too many high levels of broform, which is probably not the right uh, input that you want to do. But this is, you know, it's not my expertise. Um, but that I think, you know, the the University of Queens would be better at, at answering that question. Yeah, no, fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll certainly reach out to them. I just, it's, it's really interesting to see because we don't want to create a seaweed industry that is just only looks at the benefits and doesn't look at this with a nuanced, balanced look and see what the uh, the potential after effects or side effects or even third order, fourth order effects are. So it's, it's good to know that people are looking at all the data uh, in such a good way, in such a detailed way. Um, I, I, one of the benefits that I, I have spoken to uh, um, Rob Passmore down in Biosphere North Devon, it's about the socioeconomic benefits. Um, and I'd like to understand better how that's working for you, you know, where you see that benefits and specifically in Namibia. On the commercial side, you are creating a lot of permanent green jobs. So you have a town in Ludritz that has 15,000 people, for example, um, and a lot of them are seasonal. So it's oh. to, related to the fishing industry, which is the main employer. And then when, you know, when the season is over, then they go back home, which is a bit disruptive also for you know, stability of a, um, of a town. So you're creating jobs directly and indirectly. You have jobs within, for example, Kerblu, but you also have a lot of indirect jobs. You know, the people who, uh, do services that they repair the boat or they sell, you know, parts for the boats, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So you have the, the job creation, which is, not only a stable job creation, but a green job creation is something that is not a destructive uh, industry. It's a, it's a positive industry. You have skills development. So from teaching employees to swim, because anything between 80, 70 and 80% of the population in Namibia does not know how to swim, let alone dive. So you are also creating skills development from the swimming to, you know, training in the hatchery, to handling um, boats, et cetera, et cetera. So you have also a lot of, uh, you know, skills development, capacity building locally. You have diversifying of incomes. So you can have people who sometimes work in the fishing industry, but they, they for, you know, loading boats, et cetera, they ha now have another source of income for them. You're also yeah. creating value-added products by processing uh, the kelp in Namibia. You are then going from a you know wet ton of kelp to biostimulants, which is uh, you know more expensive, more more expensive, more value-added, which then goes to help the farmers in Namibia to be able to create a more sustainable agricultural process there. Um, you are creating a bioresource from the ocean, which is an untapped resource probably. Um, so, and, you know, you're creating uh, probably, we don't know yet, we hope that we can prove it, that you're creating a better bio, biodiversity in the water, which creates more fish stocks. So that will indirectly or directly benefit the fishing industry. Um, so there are a lot of very straightforward direct um benefits and a few indirect. For example, the Kelp Forest Foundation, we sponsor a lot of Namibian students to undertake the research in, in Namibia, but we also capacity build. We, we send them on different courses and we also pair them with universities in Europe. So Protasius, who's doing geochemistry, is paired with a university 
uh, of Cambridge. He has a supervisor within the University of Cambridge, apart from his supervisors in UNAM. The same with um, the, the biodiversity students. They're paired with University of Portsmouth and Sussex. So we always look for the real, the, the, the heads of research in these different big universities so that there is transfer knowledge as well. Okay. So there is a, a lot of, you know, instead of being parachute scientists by bringing people from above to do the work and then take all the data and the knowledge back, we're really trying to create the next generation of oceanographers within Namibia so that the people, the expertise and the data stays in Namibia. Well, that's also, I take it you've got the, the Namibian government have fully bought into this, are they? Are they, are they supporting you uh, as much as they can? The Namibian government has an excellent blue-green uh, program. And, of course, they are the ones giving Kalblu the license to operate. Right. So if they were not behind it, they wouldn't be giving the license. You know, the, the president last year even mentioned um, Kalblu as one of the examples of this blue-green economy that they're developing in his State of the Union address. So, yes, the government is very much a, a big supporter of uh, this development. Fascinating stuff there from Samantha Dean from the Kelp Forest Foundation. And if you want to hear the rest of that episode, I'll be publishing it this time next week. Thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.